0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC, points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. updates in the management of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jingjing Jing Mao.
1: Diabetes and prediabetes are an astronomically large problem over worldwide. In the United States alone, there are 96 million people with prediabetes. That's one in three adults. And even more shocking is that 80 percent of these individuals with prediabetes do not even know they have it. Prediabetes is not just a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. It carries its own increased risk of heart disease, stroke, and death. And diabetes is the eighth leading cause of death in the United States. The latest CDC data shows 37 million Americans suffer from type 2 diabetes. That's now 11% of the adult population. That rate has exploded over the past two decades, and the costs are staggering. In a 2017 economic study, the estimated medical cost for diabetes and its related complications was over $327 billion a year. That figure has undoubtedly increased over the past five years. The International Diabetes Federation estimates that there are 537 million individuals with diabetes worldwide. And that's not even counting the patients that go undiagnosed. In the United States, we estimate a third of eligible patients are not even screened for diabetes. Even with screening, there is a gigantic care gap in pre-diabetes diagnosis and treatment. Those of us in primary care are really at the forefront of diabetes and prediabetes care. With 11% of our population now affected by diabetes, every healthcare worker must become comfortable with both the care and the treatment of these patients. So today, to help me discuss the updates in the prevention and treatment of diabetes, I've invited my colleague, Jennifer Sabatino, who is a doctor of pharmacy and a practicing clinical pharmacist at Ohio State University, and one whom I've worked with for many years to help care for my patients, including those with diabetes. Today, we will cover the basics and the updates over the past half decade or so, including both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic treatment options. Now, before we dive in, I wanted to remind you to send us your questions. We'll be use, you can use that Ask a Question button on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. Please also check out our website, ccme.osu.edu, where you can find all of our webcasts, including recent ones like the medical treatment of obesity, a common comorbid condition to diabetes. You can also find subscription information, our slides, and our post-tests on our website. Today, I'll be taking us through the epidemiology and the definitions for prediabetes and diabetes, and then I will discuss the treatment for prediabetes as well as the non-pharmacologic treatment options for type 2 diabetes. Before, I will hand things off to my colleague Jen. Jen has lectured about novel diabetic therapeutics before, so I'm very excited to share her knowledge with our audience. She'll be taking us through glucagon-like receptor agonists, or GLP-1s, and sodium-glucose co-transporters 2 inhibitors, or SGLT2Is, and discuss the new class of medications with dual actions on both GLP-1 receptors and the glucose dependent insulinotropic polypeptide or GIPs. All right, without further ado, let's dive into the prevalence of diabetes. You can see from this graph here that over the last two decades, the rate of diabetes has climbed. We're getting a little bit better at diagnosing and screening diabetic patients, so the rate of undiagnosed diabetes is about stable, but the overall rate has continued to increase. And this is not just true for adult patients. This is a graph showing our pediatric patients less than 20 years of age, and you can see that it's broken down into different ethnic groups, but over time, Almost all of these ethnic groups has shown increase in rates of diabetes over this 13-year study period. I'm gonna zoom in on the bottom here where the solid line depicts the overall rate of pediatric diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And we've seen that rate go from 9% to 13.8% in just a 13-year period. And this has really matched the rising epidemic of obesity. So let's dive into prediabetes. Pre-diabetes is an increased risk for type 2 diabetes, but there are no symptoms, so unless we screen for it, we probably won't know it's there. And the risk factors include an elevated BMI, older age, being sedentary, and having family history of diabetes or gestational diabetes or PCOS, and it's more common in specific ethnic groups including African Americans, Hispanics, and Asians. And these are all the same risk factors for diabetes as well. So let's dive into what prediabetes means. I mentioned in the intro that there's an increased risk of all-cause mortality. In a meta-analysis published just recently covering 129 studies, including over 10 million patients, we can see that there is increased risk of all-cause mortality, composite cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease, and stroke. And then if we break it down a little bit more into not just prediabetes but also diabetes, you can see that it is glucose dependent. So then the green is your normal glycemic patients. And in both all-cause mortality and major atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, we see low, uh, lower rates in patients with normal glycemia compared to prediabetics, which are depicted in the blue line. And then the highest risk of these incidents like all-cause mortality and MACE is the red line which is our diabetic patients so um, pre-diabetics definitely higher risk of events compared to normal glycemic patients but not quite as high as diabetic patients and this is particularly true in female patients so on the left we see the kaplan-meyer curve for men the red is pre-diabetic patients and the black is our um or sorry this is especially true in our men so men the pre-diabetic patients are almost on top of the normal glycemic patients, whereas for women, we see that there is an increased mortality rate compared to normal glycemic patients. So it's even more important for us to catch and treat women with pre-diabetes. So what is pre-diabetes? There's really three ways to diagnose it. We can either use impaired fasting glucose, which is a glucose between 100 and 125, above which is diabetes, and impaired glucose tolerance using a two hour glucose tolerance test with a 75 gram load of glucose, and that glucose is between 140 and 199, above which 200 and above is diabetes, or hemoglobin A1C between 7.5 and 6.4, above which would be diabetes. And I just wanna point out that the impaired glucose tolerance is probably our most sensitive test, and often what is used in a lot of the studies. However, in practicality, that's a difficult test to administer in our office. And so we frequently will use the impaired fasting glucose or the hemoglobin A1C. So let's dive into an example case. So we've got a busy resident, young 27-year-old patient of East Asian descent who has a family history of diabetes and is just starting her residency. So very busy with uh, intern year, not getting much sleep, Diet is very poor, really irregular shift work-like schedule, high stress, and is coming in for that biometric screen to get the insurance discount. A1C comes back 5.8, which is the highest it's ever been. In the past, it's been 5.6, and if you look at the other measurements, those didn't change, blood pressure, BMI, weight, those are all about the same, but the A1C is going up. So, how do we deal with this? An ounce of prevention is a pound of cure, as Benjamin Franklin uh, famously said. So really treating prediabetes is essentially preventing diet, uh, treating prediabetes is preventing diabetes. And there's two major buckets that we can use to treat prediabetes. One is lifestyle and the other is pharmacotherapy. In terms of lifestyle, we can break that down even further into diet, into exercise, and weight loss, and then finally there's this other bucket. So exercise specifically, the recommendations are moderate intensity for 150 minutes a week. And moderate intensity really just means walking briskly. We're talking three to four miles per hour. And this is independent of any weight loss benefit. So if you exercise, even if it does not result in any weight loss, can reduce the A1 uh, blood sugar and prevent, help to prevent diabetes. And then diet. This is um, kind of a broad topic, and sometimes people need to be referred to a dietician to help them examine it more in depth. Um, But some of the major principles is to increase fiber. So looking at more your whole grains and decreasing simple sugars, maybe decreasing overall carbohydrate load, and then choosing things like healthy fats and um, uh, watching overall caloric intake that might be contributing to weight gain. Finally, weight loss. Even a modest weight loss of five to 10% can have a major difference on blood sugars and reducing rates of diabetes. And then on the more extreme end of things, if a patient has a lot of weight to lose, then we may need to consider bariatric surgery, and I'll go into that in more depth. On the other bucket, there are a variety of other things that can increase stress levels, decrease their patient's abilities to lose weight, decrease ability to eat healthy, those are things like mental health, disease. We know that people with higher depression rate, or people with depression have worse health outcomes, including worse diabetic, diabetic metrics. And so in getting their depression under control, helping them to get good sleep, helping them with smoking cessation is going to help them prevent diabetes, and if they have diabetes, prevent it from becoming even more severe. All right, so, um, Now, specifically with lifestyle, there are a few things that you can recommend. A comprehensive lifestyle program would include behavior modification, dietary counseling, physical activity counseling, smoking cessation, all built into it. And for example, the CDC has diabetes prevention programs that have been scientifically proven in the studies to reduce risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 58%. And these are usually covered by Medicare. And in the Medicare population, so you're 65 years old and above patients, it's even more effective. It is um, 75, 71% effective at decreasing the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So in your older patients, I would definitely recommend and offer a referral to a diabetes prevention program. This program includes everything in the comprehensive lifestyle program, plus curriculum a structured curriculum a lifestyle coach and a support group to help maintain the benefits Um, but what about pharmacotherapy well there's a ton of medications that we use to treat diabetes but what can we use for pre-diabetes there's only one that has been extensively studied that has fda approval and that's the biguanides so that's metformin that's the only biguanide really that we use And um, this is particularly helpful in our younger patients, so less than 60. Um, Also, patients with gestational diabetes seem to have better benefit. And if they're overweight, BMI above 35. This uh, metformin is not quite as effective as lifestyle. So typically, it would be something that you would add if the patient has already failed lifestyle um, uh, changes. And it can reduce the incidence of diabetes by 31%, but it does obviously have more side effects compared to lifestyle, so you need to weigh the risks and benefits, because once it's started, typically it's going to be a long-term medication. So in the graph on the right, you can see that in a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the bottom line is your lifestyle, and um, the higher the line, the higher the rate of type two diabetes. So lifestyle, in the lifestyle group, we see the lowest rate of diabetes. And then the gray line, that is your metformin group. That is definitely significantly lower than the placebo group, which is the top orange line, but it is only about half as effective as the lifestyle group. So I would definitely recommend lifestyle for all patients. And then in select patients, metformin may be a helpful add on. So once you have started somebody on treatment for prediabetes, you wanna assess their response. And that is essentially assessing their blood sugar or their A1C on an annual or more frequent basis to see if their indices have changed. And if their indices have stayed stable or have reduced, then your treatments are working. If they're increasing, then you may need to start stepping up therapy. And just to summarize, lifestyle, double as effective as pharmacotherapy, but pharmacotherapy certainly has a role and newer medications are in the process of being studied. So more to come on that. Going back to our case of the busy resident, she makes some lifestyle changes, is getting a little bit further along in residency, is able to sleep a little bit more, is less busy and able to cook, eat healthy, start to exercise a little bit. <coughs> and we see it and change in the A1C down to 5.4. And good news is using those same methods she is able to maintain those benefits over time and you can see the peak A1C in the red arrow and then a sustained decline over time. So let's talk briefly about gestational diabetes because this is something that I'm really passionate about. Gestational diabetes is the number one risk factor for development of type 2 diabetes. Only A quarter of pre-diabetics will go on to develop diabetes, but half of gestational diabetics go on to develop diabetes. And gestational diabetes is very common, and it's associated with risks to both the mom and the baby, and not just short-term risks, but also long-term risks. I'm not going to go through this whole list here, but as you can see, it can be um, have increased rates of birth defects, premature delivery, stillbirths, and miscarriages, and then in the long term. Both moms and babies have long-term risks, including higher rates of diabetes, higher for both mom and baby, higher rates of childhood obesity, worse neurodevelopmental outcomes for the child, and increased risk of cardiovascular disease for moms. So let's dive in to the treatment for diabetes. As I mentioned, I'm gonna cover the non-pharmacologic treatment options, starting with lifestyle. So in lifestyle, can lifestyle work? The short answer is it can work, but spoiler alert, it may not work for everyone uh, because it requires some pretty drastic changes to see good benefits. In the direct trial, which is a primary care-led weight loss um, weight management uh, program, they randomized 100, about 150 patients into the intervention and the control arm. So they looked at diabetics over a six um, who were diagnosed in the recent six-year period under the age of 65 with uh, elevated BMI between 27 and 45. And in the intervention arm, they stopped all of their medications for diabetes and high blood pressure and then replaced their diet with formula for the first three to five months. And then they did a stepwise food introduction. During that food introduction phase, they also started to add in physical activity and then they had structured program to help maintain and with coaching to keep them on track. Using this, in the intervention arm, you can see that the more weight the patient lost, the better their outcome of being in remission from their diabetes at one year. And so people who lost more than 15 kilos, there was a very high rate of remission at one year. But this is a pretty extreme measure to be replacing your entire diet with formula. And so there was a larger study done with a much greater number of overweight and obese patients with comprehensive lifestyle program followed for a longer period of time. but And it was planned to be a 15-year trial, but um, they stopped it early at 9.6 years because their primary outcome of death from cardiovascular causes um, was not different in the intervention arm, and so they ended up stopping it for futility. But on post-analysis, they did show that in the intervention group, the people who received that comprehensive lifestyle intervention, they did have increased rates of weight loss, better A1Cs, higher fitness levels, decreased cardiovascular risk factors, decreased sleep apnea, decreased medication, lower cost of overall medical care, and a better quality of life. So while lifestyle is not um, very beneficial at decreasing mortality, it does have a variety of other benefits and should be offered to all patients. Um, also should be offered to all diabetic patients is self-management, diabetic self, diabetes self-management education and support, or DSMES. This is really diabetic education that helps patients with on, the ongoing process of diabetes self-care and sustaining those behaviors over time because diabetes is a chronic illness. And so a lot of times when something is fresh and new, it might be a wake-up call to the patient. It might be really engaged and doing all the lifestyle changes, taking care of themselves, going to see the eye doctor, going uh, checking their feet. But over time, they get tired of all of that and it peters down. This is really to help people sustain those ongoing changes over time. And it does show improved clinical outcomes in terms of quality of life, decreases in, in hospitalization, decrease in healthcare costs, and overall mortality. And then it does reduce, have a modest reduction in A1C of about 0.6, especially if the patient engages in a um, a longer amount of time or greater than 10 hours. So when should you refer these patients? Typically at diagnosis, you can offer it annually as well as if any complications occur or if there's any major transitions of care, such as with um, a hospitalization. So I, I talked a little bit about bariatric surgery as an option earlier. So in the Swedish obesity study, they looked at a group of patients who were uh, obese and who were managed either medically or with bariatric surgery, and they showed that in the surgery group, they had much lower rates of type 2 diabetes and microvascular and micro macrovascular complications. So on the graph The orange depicts patients in the surgical arm, and then the higher the bar is, the higher the percentage without diabetes. And then we did see that drop off a little bit over time, but it's still much higher than the control group. And then um, this study was also uh, published by the Swedish Obesity Group, and they showed that it really didn't matter if the patient received, what type of bariatric surgery the patient received. Either way, if they received a sleeve gastrectomy or gastric ruin, y gastric bypass, they still showed a decrease in A1C that was significantly lower, like over a point lower than patients who were randomized to the medical therapy alone. And that was sustained over time. And then also, if we look at patients, so that was like patients who didn't have diabetes we can reduce their rate of developing diabetes using bariatric surgery, but what about patients who already have diabetes? So in patients with pre-existing diabetes who are randomized to, who were also obese, randomized to surgery or medical therapy alone, we saw a significant decrease in all-cause mortality in the bariatric surgery group and also lower rates of micro and macrovascular complications, including coronary artery disease and cerebrovascular accidents. So now I'm going to turn things over to my colleague, Jen, to discuss the pharmacologic treatments of type 2 diabetes.
2: Thank you. So Jingjing gave a great overview of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes and the non-pharmacologic therapy for those conditions, and my topic will focus on the pharmacotherapy for both of those conditions as well. I want to start with a discussion of the shift that we've seen in diabetes management towards a focus on preventing comorbidities. So we know from recent reviews that diabetes has... uh, 39% of people have chronic kidney disease, 20% have 15... I'm sorry, 20% have coronary artery disease, 15% have heart failure. We also know that people with diabetes are twice as likely to have heart disease or stroke than people without diabetes. Cardiovascular disease is responsible for half of the deaths in this patient population, and diabetes is the leading cause of kidney failure in the United States. The American Diabetes Association and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes first recommended metformin as first-line therapy for type 2 diabetes in 2008, and that recommendation remained in place for over a decade. In 2019 and 2020, the ADA standards of care in diabetes were updated to reflect the cardiovascular and renal benefits of some of the other agents. And then in 2021, the first-line recommendation for type 2 diabetes officially changed from metformin for everyone to a broader recommendation to take into account comorbidities, patient-centered treatment factors, and management needs, and generally includes metformin and lifestyle modification but can include other agents whether or not metformin is already on board. So for chronic kidney disease, the decision for first-line therapy comes down to whether or not albuminuria is present. If so, then the first choice would be an SGLT2 inhibitor with primary evidence of reducing CKD progression. The second choice would be an SGLT2 inhibitor with evidence of reducing CKD progression from cardiovascular outcome trials, or CVOTs. And the third choice would be a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit. If a patient with CKD doesn't have albuminuria, then the first line therapy would be a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor, in either case with proven cardiovascular benefit. Patients with heart failure are recommended to first receive an SGLT-2 inhibitor with proven heart failure benefit. And patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or who are at high risk of ASCVD would similarly be recommended to receive a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor in either case with that proven cardiovascular benefit. For those patients that don't have one of those compelling indications, the guidelines still recommend consideration of a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 based on patient-specific factors like the desire to minimize hypoglycemia or to promote weight loss or minimize weight gain. So we're seeing that the guidelines are really promoting the use of these two classes of drugs, and now we're going to dive into each class to get a better understanding of why. We'll start with the sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors, or SGLT2 inhibitors, beginning with this novel mechanism of action. So the kidneys normally filter glucose in the glomerulus, and then that glucose is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule by sodium glucose cotransporter 1 and sodium glucose co-transporter 2. And then less than 1% of that filtered glucose is actually excreted into the urine because of that reabsorption. SGLT2 is responsible for 90% of that glucose reabsorption. So inhibiting that enzyme leads to more glucose being excreted in the urine and lowered blood sugar levels. This is a table of the available SGLT2 inhibitors, along with their year of approval and their approved dosage forms. In the next couple columns, you can see their percent A1C lowering and weight lowering at each of those doses when used as monotherapy. So we can see that as a class, they can lower A1C by 0.5 to 1.2 percent and can lower weight by 1.9 to 3.7 kilograms. And then on the far column, you can see the cost of the medications, as they all remain brand name only, so the cost is relatively high. This table summarizes the outcomes from those cardiovascular outcome trials. Uh, We'll focus on the impact on MACE, or the major atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, which includes the composite of cardiovascular death, hospitalizations for heart failure, and ischemic stroke. But we've also included the cardiovascular death outcomes and the heart failure hospitalization outcomes in the table. The first two studies, CANVAS and DECLARE-TIMI 58, included patients who had diabetes who had cardiovascular disease or had multiple risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Canagliflozin demonstrated a 14% reduction in MACE. Dapagliflozin in the DECLARE-TIMI trial did not show a significant reduction in MACE but did show a 17% reduction in cardiovascular death and a 27% reduction in heart failure hospitalization. The next two trials, empa outcome and VERTIS-CV, included patients who had diabetes and had a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease. Empagliflozin showed a 14% reduction in MACE outcomes, but ertugliflozin did not show a significant reduction in MACE outcomes or cardiovascular death, but did show a reduction in heart failure hospitalization of 30%. The individual studies weren't powered to detect differences between groups, But a meta-analysis of the first three studies found that patients who had ASCVD had a 14% reduction in MACE outcomes. But those who didn't and just had those cardiovascular risk factors did not have a significant reduction in the MACE outcomes. We did see a 23% relative risk reduction in both cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations, independent of whether they had a diagnosis of ASCVD or heart failure. So the benefits on those major cardiovascular events occur mostly in people who have ASCVD, whereas the benefits for cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization was independent of a previous diagnosis. We have two studies that give primary evidence for um, efficacy in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. These included patients who had New York Heart Association class two, three, or four with an ejection fraction less than or equal to 40, with or without diabetes, and with an elevated proBNP. The DAPA heart failure trial included a composite outcome of both heart failure hospitalization and urgent visits requiring an intravenous therapy or mechanical or surgical intervention for heart failure, as well as cardiovascular death in their primary composite outcome. And it demonstrated that dapagliflozin reduced the risk of that outcome by 26%, with a number needed to treat of 20. The EMPEROR Reduced trial looked at a composite of just heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular death and showed that empagliflozin reduced that rate by 25% with a number needed to treat of 19. Similarly, we have now two studies that show primary outcomes for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So New York Heart Association class 2, 3, or 4 with an ejection fraction greater than 40 with and without diabetes but with an elevated pro-BMP. And the very recently published DELIVER trial for dapagliflozin showed an 18% reduction in that composite outcome of heart failure of hospitalization, urgent visits for heart failure, or cardiovascular death, with a number needed to treat of 32. The Emperor Preserve trial had shown a reduction in the primary composite outcome of heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death that was 21% with a number needed to treat of 31. We have some... Renal outcomes from the cardiovascular outcome trials, where they had a pre-specified composite renal endpoint, and you can see that each trial varied a little bit in their what their actual composite renal endpoint involved, but canagliflozin, dipagliflozin, and empagliflozin all demonstrated a significant reduction in their pre-specified renal endpoint, whereas ertuglifosin and vertus CV did not show a significant effect on the renal endpoint. Then we have two studies that show primary renal outcomes. The CREDENCE trial for canagliflozin studied patients that had type 2 diabetes and CKD with macroalbuminuria on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB and found that canagliflozin reduced that composite renal endpoint by 30% with a number needed to treat of 22. DAPA CKD included patients with CKD with macroalbuminuria with or without diabetes or with or without an ACE inhibitor or ARB though two-thirds of the patients had diabetes, and 98% were on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. And in that study, dipagliflozin lowered that composite renal endpoint by 39%, with a number needed to treat of 19. So Jingjing mentioned that other medications than metformin have been studied for prediabetes but aren't currently recommended. This article refers to a pooled analysis of the DAPA-CKD and DAPA-HF trials that showed that dapagliflozin had a non-significant reduction in onset of new diabetes during the studies. In this analysis of the DAPA heart failure trial, we can see that patients with uh, prediabetes were shown to develop diabetes in 7.1% of the placebo group compared to 4.9% in the dapagliflozin group. dapagliflozin also showed a slowed rate of progression to diabetes and a slight reduced A1C of 0.04%. So these relatively small benefits seen have to be weighed against the adverse effects that can occur with these medications and their cost. This table illustrates the different uh, labeled indications for each of the agents and the recommended dosing for each as well. So canagliflozin is approved for type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular risk reduction in diabetes in patients with cardiovascular disease, and renal risk reduction in type 2 diabetes with diabetic kidney disease and macroalbuminuria all at the same doses. If you jump down to empagliflozin, you can see that that's approved for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular risk reduction in diabetes with cardiovascular disease, and then is uniquely approved for both heart failure with reduced and preserved ejection fraction, but that the dosage that is recommended in those indications is slightly different than the other. And then jumping back up to dapagliflozin, they're approved for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular risk reduction in diabetes with cardiovascular disease, uniquely for CKD independent of diabetes and currently only approved for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, although that recently published DELIVER trial may support an approval for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction in the future. And then ertugliflozin, which as we saw didn't show a lot of benefit in those compelling indications, is right now only approved for type 2 diabetes. THIS TABLE ILLUSTRATES THE FAIRLY COMPLICATED RENAL DOSING THAT VARIES BY EACH OF THESE INDICATIONS AND ALSO BY THE eGFR CUTOFF. SO IT'S ALWAYS GOOD TO KIND OF REFERENCE THESE CUTOFFS WHEN YOU'RE DEALING WITH SOMEONE WHO HAS A REDUCED KIDNEY FUNCTION. YOU'LL NOTICE THAT THE GFR CUTOFF FOR THE DIABETES INDICATIONS IS SLIGHTLY HIGHER. AND THAT'S JUST BECAUSE AS GFR DECLINES, THE KIDNEYS AREN'T FILTERING AS MUCH GLUCOSE. SO THE EFFECT OF THESE MEDICATIONS BASED ON THEIR MECHANISM OF ACTION IS NOT AS STRONG. Um, And then all of the SGLT2 inhibitors are contraindicated in hemodialysis. The SGLT2 inhibitors can cause genital mycotic infections and urinary tract infections. So people who are especially prone to those conditions may not be the best candidates for using the SGLT2 inhibitors. We can also see some increased thirst and increased urination with their use. And they are associated with a small blood pressure lowering of, on average, 1.4 to 3.4, over 0.6 to 2 millimeters of mercury. Hypoglycemia is rare with the use of the SGLT2 inhibitors, but that risk can increase if you're adding it to a sulfonylurea or insulin, so it's sometimes beneficial to reduce the doses of those agents when you're adding on. Cases of ketoacidosis have been reported with use of the SGLT2 inhibitors and often in patients whose glucose is normal or only slightly elevated. It's usually uh, brought on by a metabolically stressful event like a surgery or an MI uh, or a prolonged period of fasting. Um, And people who are insulin deficient are more prone to develop the ketoacidosis associated with the SGLT2 inhibitors. Because of their osmotic diuretic effect, volume depletion can occur, which can lead to dehydration and hypotension. So patients who are even more at risk for those conditions like those with CKD, elderly patients or people who are already on a diuretic should be counseled that if they experience a period of fluid loss that they should hold their doses of their SGLT2 inhibitors to prevent these complications. The evidence for increased risk of lower limb amput- amputation is conflicting. Canagliflozin showed a two times higher incidence compared to placebo in their CANVAS trial, but dapagliflozin did not show the same increased incidence. Still, people who might be prone to such a thing would be people who have a history of amputation or people with severe peripheral vascular disease or severe diabetic ulcers or neuropathy, so it should be kind of a risk versus benefit discussion there. In summary, we know that the SGLT2 inhibitors can reduce hemoglobin A1c by 0.5 to 1.2% and weight by 1.9 to 3.7 kilograms. Canagliflozin to and empagliflozin have direct evidence for cardiovascular benefit, Empagliflozin and dapagliflozin have primary evidence in both heart failure with reduced and preserved ejection fraction. Canagliflozin and dapagliflozin have direct evidence and empagliflozin has secondary evidence for renal benefit. It's important to educate patients on the potential for genital infections and for dehydration, and because they're all brand name only, their use can be limited by the cost. Now we'll switch gears and talk through the glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists or GLP-1 receptor agonists. So glucagon-like peptide 1 and glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, GLP-1 and GIP, are incretin hormones released by the gastrointestinal cells in response to an oral glucose load, and they act on the pancreatic beta cells to increase insulin release in response to food. So an agonist of GLP-1 increases that response in people with type 2 diabetes who have a diminished incretin effect. And these agonists also slow the time it takes food to digest, and increase satiety. This is the table of the available GLP-1 receptor agonists organized into the short-acting and long-acting agents. You've got their year of approval listed there and the frequency of their use, as well as their approved dosage forms. It's important to note that several of the agents have a starting dose that is not considered effective for glycemic control. So that dose should only be used short term to kind of get the body used to the medication and help prevent side effects before moving on to a therapeutically effective dose. The majority of the GLP-1 agonists are injectable with the exception of the last one listed there, which is the oral form of semaglutide or ribelsis, which is an oral tablet. The short-acting agents and that oral tablet of semaglutide are meant to be taken before a meal, whereas the other agents can be used at any time of day. And as these are all, again, brand name only, you can see their cost listed there is relatively high. This is a representation of the two main dosage forms of the injectable GLP-1 agonists. The first there is a pre-filled pen, so like liraglutide, for example, which is very similar to an insulin pen. You attach a pen needle, it's a multi-use pen, so you dial up your dose, remove the pen needle, then use it for your next dose. The other option is an auto-injector, like the Lilly one represented there for dulaglutide. Um, And this is a single-use injection. There's no attaching a needle. The needle is contained within the auto-injector, and it's a relatively simple three-step process for administration. So I've found that if you're trying to um, talk to a patient about maybe adding on one of these beneficial medications and their barrier is a fear of needles or discomfort with injections, then bringing in one of these as a demonstration device and letting them see how simple it is, how it's all contained within and they don't really have to be exposed to the needle except for the actual injection can help facilitate that discussion. This table summarizes the phase three efficacy studies of each of the agents when they're added to metformin. So we can see that at the highest doses of each of the agents, the A1C lowering potential is 0.7 to 2.2%, and the weight loss potential is 2.3 to 6.9 kilograms. This is a representation of the within-class differences from head-to-head comparisons of the GLP-1 agonists. So just to orient you to the table there, the desired effect is in green, and the not desired effect is in red. So for A1C lowering and weight loss, we're looking for the highest impact, and those are in green. And then when we switch over to the third column of adverse effects, we would want that to be lowest, which is what's in green in that column. So the long-acting agents have an advantage for the A1C lowering and weight loss, and then the short-acting agents, as well as the injectable form of semaglutide, have the highest incidence of adverse effects. This table summarizes the outcomes of the cardiovascular outcome trials for the GLP-1 agonists, Um, and just to be very brief with it and not go into quite as much depth depth as we did with the SGLT2s for the sake of time, we'll focus on the MACE outcomes. So we can see that Lixacenatide in the ELIXA trial did not show a significant reduction in MACE outcomes, so no cardiovascular benefit noted there in the table. But liraglutide, dulaglutide, and semaglutide all have a green check mark because they significantly reduced the MACE outcomes in their studies. They also showed a significant reduction in new-onset persistent macroalbuminuria, so they have some renal benefit that was demonstrated in those trials as well. In the Excel trial, exenatide reduced the rate of MACE but not significantly, and the oral form of semaglutide in the Pioneer 6 study similarly reduced the incidence of MACE but not significantly. However, there is a new trial called SOL, which is ongoing, and it's evaluating oral semaglutide, again, for um, efficacy and for cardiovascular outcomes. And they are recruiting 9,000 patients, following them for up to five years, and they include patients with diabetes as well as other conditions like CKD and cardiovascular disease, and they're powered for superiority. Similarly to the SGLT2s, GLP-1 agonists do have some evidence for use in prediabetes. In a 2010 study, exenatide was compared to placebo along with lifestyle interventions, and this was done in patients with obesity and without diabetes with either normal impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose. Weight loss was more significant with exenatide than with placebo, and 77% of patients in the exenatide group who had IGT or IFG at baseline achieved normal glucose tolerance at 24 weeks compared to only 56% in the placebo group. Nausea and diarrhea more, were more common in the exenatide group than the placebo group. This 2017 study of liraglutide for safety and efficacy in weight loss included uh, patients with prediabetes and followed them for up to 172 weeks. And this graph represents the Kaplan-Meier estimates of the proportion of diagnosis of diabetes in the two groups, which you can see was much higher with placebo than with liraglutide. And then most recently in 2021, the step one trial that evaluated semaglutide for weight loss included a pre-specified endpoint where they followed patients with prediabetes and found that 84.1% in the semaglutide group compared to 47.8% in the placebo group achieved normal glycemia by the end of the trial. So we have some evidence of benefit with these agents, but what we don't have is a comparison between GLP-1 agonists and lifestyle interventions to know whether GLP-1 agonists are as effective at affecting the other components of metabolic syndrome, like hypertension and hyperlipidemia, the way lifestyle intervention does. The most common adverse effects with the GLP-1 agonists are GI-related, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, bloating, and abdominal pain. These tend to be dose-related and occur when first starting the medication or increasing the dose and are more common with the short-acting agents. It's an important counseling point to make sure people are limiting their portion sizes, especially of foods that are high in carbohydrates and fats. Injection site reactions can occur. They're most common with the exenatide forms. And again, similar to the SGLT2 inhibitors, the risk of hypoglycemia with just the GLP-1s is rare, but when you're adding to insulin or sulfonylurea, it can occur, so you may want to reduce the dose of those agents. Because of those side effects, it can be common to have to switch from one agent to another. And this article provides guidance on the approximately equivalent dosages, although it was released before some of the higher doses of dulaglutide and semaglutide were approved. So you'd have to kind of extrapolate to figure out what would be equivalent for those doses. Patients with severe GI disorders, including severe gastroparesis, were excluded from the trial, so we don't have a lot of data in that population, but there's potential that those conditions could worsen with use of the GLP-1s. There have also been cases of pancreatitis reported with use of GLP-1 agonists, so people who have a history of pancreatitis should be monitored very closely if you're going to use these agents, and, of course, we should stop the GLP-1 if pancreatitis were to occur. Thyroid cancer was shown in rodent studies of the GLP-1 agonist, but not in humans. But people who have a history of medullary thyroid cancer or multiple endocrine neocrasia type 2A or 2B should not start on these medications because they're already at a higher risk for developing that thyroid cancer. Uh, diabetic retinopathy that worsened was seen in some of the studies of the GLP-1 agonists, so for semaglutide, liraglutide, and dulaglutide, although it was only significant for semaglutide. But we've also seen worsening diabetic retinopathy with studies that included adding insulin So the thought is that it may be related more to the rapid glucose lowering than to a class effect of the GLP-1s. You can see that the altered kidney function should be a consideration for these medications with specific cutoffs for exenatide and lixacenatide. So in summary, the GLP-1 agonists effectively reduce A1C and weight. Liraglutide, dulaglutide, and semaglutide have direct evidence for cardiovascular benefit and secondary evidence for renal benefit. It's important to educate on the potential for GI effects and the mitigation strategies to prevent those, and, of course, brand name only, so their use might be limited by cost. Just briefly, I'll touch on the newest class of agents, which is the GIP-slash-GLP1 agonists. Sometimes referred to as twincretins, this is a combination of agonists to both incretin hormones, GIP and GLP-1, and the proposed effect of that is listed here in this diagram. So you can see that some of the activity is similar, where they reduce food intake, they promote satiety in the brain. Um, but while GLP-1 agonists have shown increased insulin sensitivity, it was thought to be mostly related to weight loss, whereas GIP-1 activity has shown some direct increased insulin sensitivity in preclinical studies. Terzepatite or Mounjaro showed superior A1C results when compared head-to-head with Ozempic, and the doses increased in 2.5 milligram per month increments up to 15 milligram weekly, although not much A1C lowering is seen beyond that 5 milligram per week mark. We can see weight loss up to 25 pounds over 10 months in patients with diabetes. The cardiovascular outcome trials are not expected until 2025. The similar adverse effects to GLP-1 agonists are seen, although uniquely they have a caution on reduced efficacy of oral contraceptives with the use of terzepatide. And, of course, brand name only and brand new, so very expensive. But it's still exciting to see a new agent be approved for use in diabetes, and in this case, a new class of drugs entirely.
1: Well, Jen, that was a fabulous discussion of all the medications, and the tables are, I think, wonderfully helpful to help select between the agents with the different costs and the different effects on cardiovascular, renal disease, etc., Um, Before we end our talk, I do want to cover a little bit about disparities in diabetes because, unfortunately, they're marked. So let's talk about ethnic disparities first. I mentioned that there are ethnic groups that have higher rates of diabetes, and this really includes the American Indians, Hispanics, non-Hispanic Asians, non-Hispanic blacks. And then you can see the lowest rate of diabetes is in non-Hispanic whites. And in certain populations, you can see almost a doubling effect. This is also true in pediatrics. And the bottom line, so going back to this graph of kids under 20 years of age, the bottom line arrow really is representing your Caucasian population, and we're really not seeing an increase in diabetes in those people. But in every other ethnic group, we're seeing marked rise in diabetes. And another disparity is education level. If a patient has less than a high school degree versus someone who has more than a high school degree, we're really seeing a much higher rate of diabetes in those patients, almost double that of if they have an advanced degree. Also, poverty is a huge problem and a huge um, cause of disparity within diabetes. So patients who are below the federal poverty line have almost a three-time higher rate of diabetes compared to those who are at the five times higher than the po- federal poverty line and this is even more true or even more disparate among women so what can we do about this well i really don't have all the answers but i do want to point out the moving to opportunity study this is was a, this was a trial sponsored by the um human Health and Human Services that looked at almost 4,500 low-income families, and they randomized patients in five metropolitan areas who qualified for public housing into three different groups. There was the control arm, the group who received their Section 8 housing voucher, and then a group who not only received the voucher but also counseling to move specifically to a low-poverty-level neighborhood defined as having less than 10% poverty level. And those who moved to the low poverty level neighborhoods really saw a decrease in rates of diabetes development. So moving to a low poverty neighborhood may be a very reasonable way to help uh, address some of these disparities. So to kind of summarize and synthesize the information we learned today, we wanna go through a case. We have a um, kind of middle-aged white male with high blood pressure and autoimmune hepatitis, also has obesity, who is coming in for preventative health screening. And on that screen, his A1C is 9.9, glucose is 229. So we, um, unfortunately, he doesn't have any diabetes, but he is on high dose steroids to treat his hepatitis. So we diagnose him with steroid induced diabetes. And what's the next step in management? Lifestyle, metformin, insulin, GLP-1, or SGLT-2? Well, the answer is really more than one. Uh, lifestyle. But in this case, we started the patient on insulin because he has steroid-induced diabetes and we think that with a rapid steroid taper, he may be able to come off of the insulin. And he also had some insurance limitations, so cost was a factor. But a couple months later, he's now off steroids, but he's still on insulin. So we recheck his measurements in six months and we see that his A1C has come down to 6.5 Yay, but unfortunately, that BMI has been increasing despite regular exercise and improved diet. So we keep on with the current course because the diabetes is controlled, and he continues with his healthy lifestyle, but he continues to gain weight. BMI is now up to 45, almost 45, and his A1C is now up to 8.3. So we add metformin. In addition to metformin and insulin, what is the next step? A lifestyle, or start um, GLP-1, start SGLT-2, start a DPP-4, start sulfonylurea, or increase the insulin. In this situation, we chose to start a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and also referred the patient to uh, co-management with a clinical pharmacist. And over time, we were able to titrate up the GLP as long, along with reinforce diabetes management, and self-care. And through those efforts, he lost 30 pounds, got his BMI down to 41, now completely off insulin, and that A1C is now controlled at 6.3. So now that we've gone through all that, Jen, one of the most frequent patients that I get asked by my patients is, can they treat their diabetes naturally? For example, are there any supplements they can take that actually have
2: proven benefits to help lower blood sugars? So the short answer is no. Um, Often supplements lack the robust data needed to support their advertised claims. Some, like cinnamon, have conflicting evidence. So they have small studies that show some blood sugar lowering and small studies that show no blood sugar lowering at all. But they don't have studies that show a sustained impact on hemoglobin A1C or diabetic outcomes. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is that the public tends to think that supplements are safe to add to their regimen without medical advice because they're available, when really they're not FDA regulated. So I know I've had a patient who chose to start a supplement. The main ingredient was cinnamon, and he did see some blood sugar lowering that wasn't otherwise explained, but it also had several other ingredients which supplements often do, and those ingredients interacted pretty significantly with his warfarin, so we had to recommend that he discontinue. So would use of a supplement always have such a significant risk associated not necessarily, but there's always a risk and the benefit is pretty low based on the evidence that we have, not to mention the cost of the supplements. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then does treating pre-diabetes or preventing diabetes have a mortality benefit that's a
1: great question and one that we don't have very robust data on you know i had presented that the pre-diabetes does have risk factors for higher mortality compared to normal glycemia but there aren't a lot of studies looking at if you're treating pre-diabetes if that will lower your mortality There was a study that was just published last year in 2021, came out of Michigan, and it was a retrospective chart review looking at patients with prediabetes and comparing them with patients with normal glycemia. And in that study, what they showed is patients with prediabetes who normalized their indices had lower um, glycemia. more, all-cause mortality and lower MACE rates of MACE compared to patients who did not lower their indices, continue to be pre-diabetic, or um, went on to develop diabetes, but were not quite as low as the patients who were normal glycemic. So I think this is an area that needs more study, but so far the evidence is pointing to there is a benefit to preventing or to to treating prediabetes. And then we know, obviously, that diabetes carries an even higher risk, and so preventing diabetes is certainly a worthwhile endeavor. All right, last question. You know, I I had mentioned GDM is super common, and it's a super high risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So can we start using some of these new therapies, like GLP-1s and SGLT-2s, for patients who are pregnant or lactating?
2: So this is another area where more evidence is needed. We don't have human studies in pregnancy. We do have some evidence from animal studies that show adverse effects on development. So for now, we don't recommend use of SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP1s in pregnancy. And we also don't have data that shows whether these medications transfer to breast milk, so they're not recommended for use in lactation.
1: Perfect. To close out our discussion today, we want to finish with a few p- few key points. First. Pre-diabetes is extremely common and underdiagnosed. It carries increased risk for all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and stroke. And type 2 diabetes is a largely preventable illness, with comprehensive lifestyle change still being the most effective method of prevention. Jen?
2: Type 2 diabetes is a deadly and costly disease, though modern therapies can be effective at not only controlling it, but decreasing comorbidities.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to get your CME credit and your MOC points by taking our post-test on the website, ccme.osu.edu. Next week, we're off for the winter holidays, but we'll be right back before the new year with a webcast on the social determinants of health with Dr. Kelly Cranen. I hope you have a wonderful holiday. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.